First, a warning. In this episode, we discuss treatment of enslaved people that includes violence, family separation, child abuse, and domestic violence. When an enslaved American was born, they not only had nothing, every effort was made to assure that they felt like they were nothing. He or she was born into a system that didn't recognize their humanity. All of the usual marks that make you stand out as an individual were not there. Enslaved people didn't know their birthdays, nor even the year of their birth. They were often given the last name of their enslaver. Their families may have been sold to a plantation hundreds of miles away, and thus they may have very little sense of who their real relatives were. This is why I think it's important to focus on the process of an enslaved person asserting her personality. The struggle for liberation of a people starts with the self. Only when one realizes his or her humanity and asserts his or her personhood can their efforts for liberation spread to other people and attack the system of injustice. With this in mind, I'll do the best I can to convey the story of the early life of Araminta Ross. I wonder if you've heard of her. I'm Eric Bowman, and this is The Virtue Field. She was born enslaved in March of 1822, or thereabouts, in Dorchester County, which is on the eastern shore of Maryland. Her mother was named Harriet Green, and she went by the nickname Ole Ritt. And her father was named Ben Ross. Young Araminta Ross went by the nickname Minty. The story of slavery on the eastern shore of Maryland in the 1800s is similar to slavery in the rest of the country yet also unique in some important ways. Of course, enslaved people were dehumanized. They were a commodity. Attempts to assert their humanity were snuffed out, a constant reminder of their dehumanized state. Yet there were some strange affirmations that they were human. For example, up into the 1820s, families often stayed together with the same enslaving family. It was frowned upon to sell enslaved people far away from their families, an unwritten rule that seems to affirm that they are people who love and have free will. Manumission was often promised later in life, somewhere around the age 45. Consequently, in Maryland, up to half of the black population were freed people. Also, because Maryland bordered directly on free states, it had close proximity to the north. The intricate coastline offered many alternate paths for escape, and thus, escape was fairly common. Historian Kate Clifford Larson, in her book Bound for the Promised Land, explains well the evolution of slavery in Maryland in the 1820s. As the economy shifted to timber and grain crops, there was less use for year-round enslaved people. This meant that there may be a large number of enslaved or formerly enslaved people working in various capacities with various levels of freedom working throughout Maryland. This added to a network of allies if one was trying to make their escape. Enslaved people were leased out to others who needed work, 
Sometimes enslaved people were even able to hire themselves out and make a little money. This might lead to an increased sense of independence. But more importantly, it created a climate where it wasn't unusual to have a black person seemingly roaming freely in Maryland. However, as enslaved people had diminished value in an economy such as this, shifting towards grain crops, timber, and shipping, King Cotton was thriving in the Deep South, and the demand for slaves down there was booming. Thus, there was a new way to make money, the domestic slave trade. Here, one would sell enslaved people to the Deep South, where demand was higher because cotton plantations were making enormous profits by exploiting unpaid enslaved labor. Adding to this, the international slave trade was outlawed in 1808, increasing the domestic trade and giving American domestic slave traders a monopoly. There were huge profits to be made. But selling enslaved people to the Deep South wasn't only profitable. It also provided a horrifying threat that could be lorded over enslaved families. To keep them in line, to maintain the racial caste system, enslavers used the threat of sale as a way to terrorize enslaved people. The scattering of an enslaved family by selling loved ones deep south was a constant threat and a horrifying way to torture enslaved people. With this threat of family separation, enslaved people would do whatever they could to keep their families together. Minty's mother, Old Rit, was once confronted with this threat when enslavers came to her home seeking her child. She said, You are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. The specter of family separation hung over Minty's head for her entire life, and she had to overcome the other evils that came with enslavement. Each time Minty was hired out by her enslaver, she was subject to whippings and beatings at the hands of other masters. As an adolescent, Minty was hired out as a nursemaid. She was whipped when the baby cried. We cannot let this form of child abuse be accepted as normal, as a mere consequence for poor work performance. Minty was an enslaved child. In one instance, Minty stole a sugar cube from the table when she thought her enslavers weren't paying attention. The woman of the house noticed and chased Minty out of the house with a whip. Exhausted and scared from her escape, Minty hid in a pig pen for over three days. She became so hungry, she ate from the pig trough. She eventually succumbed and returned to the house where she received her whipping three days later. She was once beaten with a knotted rope. Another time, she was beaten so badly that she had her ribs broken and her internal organs lacerated. She eventually had scars all over her body from beatings at the hands of enslavers. Eventually, her body would become so damaged that her value as an enslaved person would plummet. Later in her life, Minty described slavery as the next thing to hell. One instance of violence that would have lasting effects in Minty's life also happened when she was an adolescent. When visiting town, Minty witnessed an escaped enslaved person being chased down the street by his overseer. The overseer demanded that Minty help him tie down the convict. 
When Minty refused to help, the fugitive ran. The overseer hurled a heavy metal object at him, which missed him but struck Minty in the head. It cracked her skull and left her unconscious and bleeding heavily. She received no medical attention and was back to work in the fields within two days. This blow to the head led to seizures, headaches that Minty would suffer from for the rest of her life. Physical pain, torture, poverty, these things can break a person. Not knowing where your next meal will come from, not knowing if your family will survive intact, constant reminders that you are worth nothing but for the labor you can provide, all of this leaves scars on people. It must have left scars on Minty that were even worse than the physical scars. Minty suffered from all of the pain that one can experience as an enslaved person. The stories are there. But that head wound also led to visions, which she interpreted to be direct experiences of God. Minty was already a religious person, but these experiences made her feel that she was hearing directly from God, that she was loved by God, and that she was doing God's work. 20th century American pastor, theologian, ethicist, and mystic Howard Thurman gives us an excellent way to understand the life of Minty Ross and to explain the ethical outlook that she exemplifies. Thurman was born in Florida in 1899, a grandson of formerly enslaved people. After attending the Rochester School of Theology, he was appointed the Dean of Chapel at Howard University and later at Boston University. He was a minister, theologian, philosopher, mystic, but to him, those things were concerned with action. In 1936, he traveled to meet Gandhi. Later in the 1950s and 60s, he would be spiritual advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His theory of ethics is very helpful in our conversation about enslaved people like Minty Ross. To better express what I mean here, I'm relying on Dr. John Cartwright, who wrote The Religious Ethics of Howard Thurman for the Annual of the Society of Christian Ethics in 1984. Thurman believed that God is the creator of being and life itself. But this is a God that is encountered personally and privately by each individual. The individual is the ground for the experience of God. Thus, the individual has supreme value and worth. Dr. Cartwright explains, the God-person encounter is experienced as providing a sense of the ultimate worth of the individual as a private person. Hence, no matter how demeaning one is treated in life by one's fellow human beings, the individual retains the dignity that is experienced with God that cannot be diminished or taken away. What Thurman is saying is that the religious experience is the beginning of and the grounding of the moral life. Cartwright quotes Thurman's words from his book, The Creative Encounter. The moral quality is mandatory because the individual must be genuine in his preparation and in his motivation and in his response. His faith must be active and dynamic. The individual enters the experience and or the preparation for it with the smell of life heavy upon him. He has in him all his errors and blindness his raw conscience and his scar tissue, all his loves and hates. It is in his religious experience that he sees himself from another point of view, 
In a very real sense, he is stripped of everything and he stands with no possible protection from the countenance of the other. The things of which he is stripped are not thrown away. They are merely laid aside and with infinite patience they are seen for what they are. It is here that the great decision is made as to what will be kept and what will be discarded. The new center is found, and it is often like giving birth to a new self. In other words, the religious experience leads to knowledge of God, but also knowledge of the self. When one realizes that they are a person who is loved by God, who has value, who has the inner light of God within, this is when one begins to live the virtuous life. I think this is a great explanation because so many of us struggle to live virtuously, and it is so often because of our own brokenness, our feeling that we aren't loved or we aren't worthy. With Minty's religious feelings, we know that she had found God and she had found herself, and she knew that she was loved, even though she was enslaved. Minty's early life was about survival, and it becomes resistance as she discovers her sense of self. When she was younger, she laid low. She was obedient. She hid in plain sight. She wore thick, heavy clothes covering her body while simply doing her job. She wore those thick layers of clothes mostly to protect her body from whipping. As a youth, she ran away when she knew she would be whipped for stealing a sugar cube. She hid in the pig trough to avoid capture. She ran away several times for several days. Is she becoming emboldened? Is she practicing? Or is she rebelling against the notion that she is just a slave, not fully human, not worthy of freedom? As time goes by, as her religion becomes more sophisticated, she becomes more concerned with liberating herself and others. And even later, she will become concerned with attacking the systems that oppress. She became increasingly religious with visions of God. She was inspired by the liberation stories of the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament. And among her favorites were the stories of the prophets and the Exodus story. She rejected any biblical teachings that told slaves to be obedient. Minty's parents were freed at the age of 45 as was a common practice in Maryland at that time. But the Brodus family, the enslavers, ignored this for the children of Old Writ. Minty married a freedman, John Tubman, in roughly 1844. She took his surname. Soon after that, with no documentation and no record to confirm it, she changed her name to Harriet, the name of her mother, the woman who said she would split open the head of a man trying to sell her son to the Deep South. In the words of Howard Thurman, she had asserted her personality. She had given birth to a new self. Franciscan priest and founder of the Center of Action and Contemplation, Richard Rohr, writes about the liberating function that one's religion can have. I think the real purpose of the spiritual journey is to expand people's ability to do good by liberating them. This is what Jesus did after all. Free people from their pain, their sin, their uncleanness, and even their deaths. 
Then he sent them back to their families and to society to live in relationship and live lives of freedom and wholeness. Harriet Tubman had begun the process of liberating herself. Now she would return to her family and to the unjust society in which she lived to liberate others. Virtue Field is brought to you by the Revolution Ethics Project. It's written and hosted by me, Eric Bowman, and produced and scored by Echo Finch. <laughs>